As it's been said many times here on Stories of Symmetry, the succession of Israel's kings went like this. King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon, then civil war. Usually, we leave it there and move on. But today, let's dive a little deeper. Around 930 BC, Israel was wrested by a civil war and divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, called Israel, comprising nine of the twelve tribes, and the southern kingdom, called Judah, comprising the other three. Roughly 200 years later, in 722 BC, Sargon II of Assyria invaded and then conquered the northern kingdom. The nine tribes living there were exiled and dispersed. Thus began the Great Diaspora. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. As always, please share this podcast with those you know, as your word-of-mouth testimony is the best way to help us reach more people and share good news. The word diaspora is derived from a Greek word that basically means to scatter about. And that's exactly what happened. The Israelites were scattered. After the Assyrians exiled the tribes of the northern kingdom, those tribes never returned to Israel. In fact, the nine tribes that composed the northern kingdom, along with much of the tribe of Levi, are known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. And they remain lost even to this very day. Groups of people from all over the world have come forth claiming to be one of the ten lost tribes, but most such claims have been debunked. The most notable exception is the Beta Israel of Ethiopia, who claim to descend from the lost tribe of Dan, a claim which nearly all Jewish authorities support. Otherwise, the scholarly authorities aver that the ten lost tribes were long ago assimilated into the lands of their exiles. As mentioned already, the northern kingdom and its line of kings ended around 722 BC, when the Assyrians conquered. However, the southern kingdom, called Judah, persisted for another 130 or so years before it met its own ill fate during the reign of King Zedekiah. Though he is remembered as having done evil in the sight of the Lord, being the last king, he must have felt much the same grief as the fictional Theoden of Rohan when he lamented that I should live to see the last days of my house. The southern kingdom ended in 587 BC, when Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, including even Beit Hamikdash, the temple of the Lord. The last chapter of the second book of Chronicles records the event. Against Judah, God brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they slaughtered the young men, even in the temple of the Lord. All throughout there was wholesale massacre, and the land became an abattoir. Indiscriminate, 
compassionless butchery of the young man and the fair maiden yet in their prime, and even upon the elderly and the halt there was neither clemency nor quarter. The Lord gave them all into the hand of Babylon. And of Beit HaMikdash, everything of value was plundered, the great and the small. And the treasures of the kings and princes also, all brought to Babylon. Then, with a great conflagration, they razed the house of God and destroyed the wall surrounding the city. Those who escaped death were captured by Nebuchadnezzar and brought to Babylon as slaves and slaves they remained until the kingdom of Persia arose. The second diaspora began in this way. But why? Why would God allow such horrors to befall his people? What possible crime was committed to warrant such lurid punishment? The text tells us. Those who escaped death were captured by Nebuchadnezzar and brought to Babylon as slaves and slaves they remained until the kingdom of Persia arose, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had relished its many Sabbaths. And as the land lay desolate, each day it kept Sabbath, to the fulfillment of seventy years. Now we ask, what was the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah? This refers to something that the prophet Jeremiah said, and which has been recorded in the 25th chapter of the document bearing his name. Thus says the Lord, The whole land of Israel shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after the seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, making the land an everlasting waste. That's the prophecy, but it only says what, not why. But returning to our text from Chronicles, it said, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had relished its many Sabbaths, and as the land lay desolate, each day it kept Sabbath, to the fulfillment of seventy years. The author tells us that the second diaspora, the exile of Judah, an enslavement of the people, which began as a violent and extensive massacre, culminating in the destruction by fire of not only Jerusalem, but also Beit Hamikdash, the very temple of God, was Judah's punishment, not for crimes committed against a person or persons, but against the land. For the Israelites had deprived the land of its God-ordained Sabbath rest. And for this crime... God's just punishment was 70 years of slavery for the perpetrators, and, as reparation for the land, 70 years of rest. Many people are vaguely familiar with the concept of Sabbath. For Christians, it is celebrated on Sunday. For Jews, the Sabbath, called Shabbat, is celebrated from the gloaming of Friday to the gloaming of Saturday. This is the weekly Sabbath, which occupies one day in every seven-day period. Less familiar, however, is the sabbatical year, which is called Shemitah. Similar to the weekly Sabbath, Shemitah occupies one year in every seven-year period. For this reason, some people call it the septennial Sabbath, 
literally, the seventh year or Sabbath. Instructions concerning Shemitah are recorded in several parts of the Torah, but the idea is basically this. For six years, the people worked the land, but on the seventh year, they let it rest. Of the field, the vineyard, the orchard, there was no cultivation that seventh year, and pruning, planting, and harvesting were forbidden also. During Shemitah, nothing produced by the land was to be touched except by hungry, impoverished people and wild animals. And since that agrarian society was instructed to forsake agriculture for one full year, God made this promise. I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year, when its crop arrives. That people might be healthy and productive, God prescribes periodic rest. One day each week, take time off and rejuvenate. But amid such busy lives like we all have, this seems counterintuitive. As is, there's scarcely enough time to accomplish what's on the to-do list, let alone take an extended rest. So the question then becomes, if I take the Sabbath rest, will it revitalize me enough to make up for, and perhaps even exceed, the time lost due to that rest? In short, does the benefit of rest outweigh the cost of taking it? A while back, Tesla CEO Elon Musk participated in an interview in which he said that an electric semi-truck produced by his company, would be able to not only outperform its best diesel counterpart, but that the Tesla 18-wheeler would beat its competitor in tug-of-war while driving uphill. This is the same challenge to Shemitah, and the response is the same. Completely outdo the alternative. When working the land, one year's effort produces one year's return. But God promised that if the Israelites abided Shemitah, then the sixth year would yield enough to feed them through the ninth. In giving the land one year of rest, God gave the people, not one, not two, but over three years' worth of bountiful harvest. Although Shemitah sounds too great to refuse, the Israelites skipped it, and they worked the land in the seventh year, as they had the previous six. Did God destroy them for their disobedience? No, it was only one transgression, and perhaps they forgot. Accidents happen. But when their second chance came, again, there was no observation of Shemitah, no rest for the land. And at the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, all the way to the seventieth occasion, the Shemitah never happened. Seven years times seventy cycles is 490 years, nearly 500 years, and not once did they let it rest. Thus, as punishment, against Judah, God brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to reave and destroy Jerusalem and the southern kingdom, to indiscriminately slaughter and massacre the Israelites, and to enslave whatever survivors there were. The house of Israel was removed, 
until the land had relished its many Sabbaths. And as the land lay desolate, each day it kept Sabbath, to the fulfillment of seventy years. Simon Sinek, a well-known speaker on leadership, says that leadership and the alpha position come with desirable benefits, great things for which the average person yearns. But those positions also come with a cost, the cost of self-interest. Good leaders, Simon says, put themselves at risk for the benefits of others. So there's a trade-off. Yes, leaders have the perks which in the business world might look like corner offices, company cars, and high salaries. But those perquisites are only given to the leader in exchange for that leader watching out for the lead, and that when there is danger, that person who is stronger, better fed, better clothed, teeming with serotonin and confidence, will charge toward the danger and protect the others. And when leaders violate that deep social contract, like when a CEO fires half of his employees and then gives himself a bonus funded by taxpayer subvention. It is not the amount of money that makes us angry. It is the sordid violation of their sacred charge of leadership. Because instead of sacrificing themselves for their people, they let the people be sacrificed, or maybe even sacrifice them. The anger and disgust are not with the money, but with the violation of trust. I think this is why God was so outraged by the Israelites. God didn't punish them with slavery and death because they picked olives when they weren't supposed to. It wasn't picking the olive. It was what the action stated. Failing to observe Shemitah was equivalent to the people looking at God and saying, We don't trust you. Although they gathered a super harvest in the sixth year, They nevertheless worked the land in the seventh, because they didn't trust God's provision, and they forgot that their plenty did not come from their labors in the field, but from God. They forgot Deuteronomy 6, which says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to give you vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Furthermore, it was not that the Israelites' failure to observe Shemitah was an honest mistake, as if they forgot it, or even that they chose to ignore it. But indeed, they scorned it. It would have been enough if they themselves had worked the land that seventh year. But even worse, they hired out foreigners to do their dirty work for them so that they might appear to be keeping the law. It was the same hypocrisy for which Jesus chided the Pharisees. Ignoring God's command is one thing, but taking efforts to fabricate a charade and pretend to righteousness all the while mocking the Lord, that is altogether another thing, and contemptible indeed. By placing foreigners over the agriculture every seventh year, They not only rejected God, but did so without even the courtesy and decency to be honest about it. They lied to and tried to deceive 
which is a far baser crime than outright betrayal. And, in taking such pains to conceal their treachery, and in acting like the letter of the law was God's only concern, the Israelites revealed that they never knew God in the first place. The character of God was unknown to them, and they never took time to understand. If once in those 500 Shemitah-less years they had stopped to ask who God is, then they might have seen the error in their ways and discovered that God takes no delight in pretenses, only in genuine hearts. God wanted the people to trust, as it was Abraham's trust in God that earned him the epithet, friend of God. But 1,000 years after God called Abraham friend, his descendants refused to follow their forebears' example and trust the Lord, who had already brought them out of slavery, given them water in the desert, given them their promised land and the very fields with which they mocked God's teaching, given them even abundant harvests in the sixth year, and yet they did not trust enough to, in the seventh year, let it rest. If they had sought to know God, the Israelites would have known that the posture of the heart is more important than deeds. They would have known that Shemitah was about trust, and they would have known that it was also about the land itself. Just like humans, the land needs rest to be its most productive. Now and again, it should lie fallow. Science is just now catching up to this idea, though even with empirical data, it is hardly obeyed. God knew all along, though, that observation of the septennial Sabbath had more benefits than skipping it. But this result, while true, is only part of the message. Productive land, in the end, benefits people. But what about the land for its sake? You see, God cares about the land, too. God enjoyed the land long before using its soil to craft human beings to place upon it. And God puts flowers in glens that humans never trod. In the depths of tarns, God places gems that no diver will ever find. And in the deepest caves, I believe that God can center his wonders that no human eye will ever behold, all for God's own enjoyment. The Lord relishes the barley and his friends with the silver cypress, and God must surely love the land in which they grow. Is it possible that when God reached into the dirt to form a human, it was not the first times he had pressed his hands into the loam? For just as God created lobsters and bobcats and angels and the sun and moon and eagle nebula, God also created the land. And though we believe that his favorite is the human, God loves all creation. When God gave the promised land to the favorite family of his favorite species, he told the land to serve them, but with assurance that it would not be used without care and not plowed without a promise, that God would not see the land become a slave to the people of Israel. No, God would let it rest. Maybe God thought that after having been slaves themselves, the Israelites would understand and treat the land with the compassion that they so desperately saw in their bondage. God told them, When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
But the people forgot about their former oppression, and they abused the land and the blessings of God. Therefore, as justice to the land, and as punishment to its transgressors, the people of Israel were once again taken into slavery, not to receive manumission until the law of an eye for an eye had been satisfied, until the land had relished its many Sabbaths. And as the land lay desolate, each day it kept Sabbath, to the fulfillment of seventy years. And we too must rest. Hopefully your last vacation or time off is within recent memory, but whether it is or isn't, Imagine yourself finally taking a rest from whatever it is that wearies you. Stress, child-rearing, career, family, rush-hour traffic, school. Envision respite, your dream vacation. Envisage a week or more to veg out, photosynthesize at the beach, and put your worries out of sight in whatever way seems best to you. When holiday ends, you'll feel invigorated and refreshed. But for how long? Returning to work on a Monday, how long does that rest stay with you? Does it last the week? Does it at least last until Wednesday? How long until it's like you never took a break at all? Or suppose that you take rest with a weekly Sabbath. What are the odds that it will energize you for the entire upcoming week? For most people, it doesn't. But the fault lies less in Sabbath, and more in how we do it. That's because a Sabbath was not created as a day for lazing about and acting like a leech. God did not ordain a day to sleep in and lull all afternoon, nor a day for accomplishing errands. As such, if you spend Sunday sitting around like a torpid turnip, then you might rest your body but it will be sore again once life resumes. What must take place is that we rest our spirits rather than our bodies. And with the former, the latter will follow. But the order is paramount. When we rest the spirit, physical rejuvenation follows. This approach is a fundamental shift. Consider a runner who has a hamstring pain and decides to rest. That rest might be quite good, but the sages know that sometimes, unless that runner changes his gait and corrects the cause of the pain, no amount of rest will prevent the problem from returning. Rather, he must change the very way he runs and strengthen muscles that aren't even near the ache. Sometimes, we focus too much on treating symptoms instead of causes. That's why your 10-day vacation barely sustained you through the work week. You took time off, maybe, but you didn't change any of the reasons why you had to get away in the first place. The stress, or whatever it is, was waiting for you upon your return. And with Sabbath, there's a reason why it's not getting you through the week. It's not that Sabbath is flawed, it's that we use it wrong. We sleep in and watch the game when we should be reflecting on God and spending quality time with the Holy One. Maybe that means going to church and helping out there, but not necessarily. 
we should do whatever points us to God. The Sabbath is like orienteering and using a compass to walk in a straight line. I can't stare at my compass as I walk. So what I do is shoot my azimuth, due east for example, find a stationary object thereabouts, put my compass away, and start toward my goal. Hopefully I won't stray too far off course, but inevitably I'll drift at least a little, and mathematically speaking it's impossible to keep perfect. So to keep from erring too much, I stop every hundred meters, reshoot my azimuth, and adjust to stay on course, focused and headed in my desired direction. And for the Sabbath, that means that every seven days, I stop, redirect my attention toward God, adjust my focus, ground myself in the divine, and only then am I ready to keep going. As a final point, I've heard it said that it's easy enough to take the people out of Egypt, but it's much harder to take Egypt out of the people. God liberated the Israelites, but they still had Egypt on their minds. So God told them to take one day each week and observe Sabbath. Because in Egypt, as a slave, a person's worth equates to their product. One is only as valuable as the bricks he makes. And if he goes a day without making bricks, then he's worthless. But God is against that mentality. In God's eyes, a person's worth is not in his or her capacity to produce. Rather, it's something less tangible and wholly inalienable. And if a person stops making bricks for a day, a month, or a decade, then that doesn't decrease the value of that person, not in God's eyes. So to remind the people, God gave them a day to cease their labors. Do not work, God insisted. Reflect on me instead, in whose image you are made. God labored for six days, and on the seventh, rested. And God gave that gift to us. Because God rested, we who are made in the same image, after accomplishing the Lord's work for six days, must also rest on the seventh. We achieve that rest when we pause our labors and turn instead to seek out the one from whom true rest flows. When we get close to God, our spirits are refueled, and when our spirits are full, then our bodies are restored. And in the bigger picture, the closer we come to God, the better we will understand how God thinks, the better we will comprehend what it means that God destroyed the very temple that bore his name because the people mistreated the land and owed it a debt. In the end, when it comes down to it, what we have to do is let it rest. My name is Ben Laboot, and thank you for listening to Stories of Symmetry. I hope you found beauty and purpose in today's episode. And if you did, then please share Stories of Symmetry with those you know. Perhaps invite them to join you for the next episode in two weeks. Until then, remember that blogs, episodes, and more are available online at storiesofsymmetry.com, on Facebook and Instagram at storiesofsymmetry, and on most major podcast apps. Go with God, 
go in peace.